Genesis chapter 47, we begin in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, or why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Now why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifth shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and make promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his staff. <clears throat> Necessity is the mother of ingenuity, or as Plato once said in his Republic, our need is the real creator. 
Yes, the driving force, perhaps the driving force in most inventions is a need. That is, as we say, necessity is the mother of all inventions, the mother of ingenuity. But in my personal experience, and as this text would argue too, necessity is also the mother of forced decisions. Decisions you wouldn't conceive under more favorable circumstances but you are left with no choice. And now the history of humankind, we all know this, is a history of inventions. The invention of the wheel to further transport. The need to communicate. The need to communicate over long distances led to the creation of different communication devices from smoke signals to telegraph to telephone, and so on. Climate change requires some creativity and rethinking. The economics of agrarian cultures must change under population pressure, especially in areas that become increasingly arid. Environmental pollution calls for new technology, and we call it clean or sustainable energy. But there is nothing, nothing like a seven-year famine in the ancient Near East. A drought that brings famine, I should say, in its trail. The scarcity of food in such cases was always accompanied first by malnutrition, Second, by starvation. Third, by epidemics, sicknesses, taking a hold of the society on account of weakness. And then, of course, the, um, the site of mass graves or mass burnings. Famines were feared by great and small. They brought empires to their knees. Those who lived near a city or lived in a city were wandering about the streets, if you can picture this, picking up stalks and leaves of vegetables, all filthy with mud, and ate them. They had nothing else. And others cut pieces of dead carcasses to fill their mouths, often without cooking the rotting meat. Now we read there was no food in all the land, for the famine was severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished on account of the famine. And in the following verses of this text, the author chronicles two related ideas that I have laid out before you now. First, Joseph's ingenuity, his inventive spirit in time of need, necessity being laid upon him ruler of Egypt. So he provides not only for his own people, the clan of Jacob, but for all of Egypt. And in the process of all this, he even manages to fill the coffers of his king with treasures, with money. And the second theme is Egypt's gradual descent. It's a forced descent into slavery or servitude on account of the famine. 
And the two themes then stress both the positive and the negative effects that necessity has on us. It fosters invention and ingenuity, creativity, and it can also have an adverse effect, enslaving and subduing people. And this is certainly what you can see here. Now, to be sure, and uh, nothing can, ta can be taken away from this, David was a benevolent ruler, and he was a wise ruler also. And the people who um, make this descent into servitude, into tenancy and, and, and dependence on Pharaoh, they acknowledge it, they concede it, they are saying, you saved our lives, we owe our lives to you. But the famine leaves its mark. Egypt is brought to its knees and three successive steps that change the lives of the people permanently. So under pressure, they first spend all their savings, all their money to buy food. Second, once the money is spent, they sell their livestock for food. And when both money and livestock are gone, they sell their land. They sell themselves as servants to Pharaoh. Three times the author reiterates the social decline by using the word servants. They became servants in verses 19, 21, and 25. The wholesale societal revolution with lasting consequences, forced by famine, is particularly lodged in the sweeping statement of verse 21, where we read, Now as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. The change, therefore, as you can see, was profound and systemic, with lasting consequences for all Egyptians, and not for the better not long term. Since this famine, they had to render a 20% levy of all their produce to the king. Now, you may think, that seems excessive. It seems much. But it's actually rather reasonable, very reasonable. In fact, generous for ancient Near Eastern policies or political practices. Many other kings or rulers were not as generous and forgiving as Joseph, and they took much more from the people. The same, by the way, is true when you compare 20% or one-fifth with the rate of today's tax jungles in the Western world. In most Western countries with a higher living standard, taxation ranges from around 40% in Belgium and Germany to around 30%, give or take one or two, in countries like Italy, France, or Finland. And so 20% isn't too bad, is it? By the way, if you complain about your taxation or your tax rate, you are well below the 30% mark in the USA. So once again, you do not have so much to complain about. Not as much as other people, <laughs> to be sure. And so the famine fosters invention. And at the same time, forced servitude, making Pharaoh the actual 
owner of all Egyptian property whatsoever. And the people are let down this path to tenancy because of the naked necessity to put food on the table for their families and loved ones and keeping their land from degenerating into a waste. Their lives are spared, saved even, but they also pay for it. It is intriguing, however, to see how keen the narrator is to limit this tale of the famine to the Egyptians. The Hebrews, or Jacob's clan, surely were affected by it. After all, it is what brought them to this place, to Egypt. But do you think that Joseph made his dad and his brothers to do what the Egyptians had to do to survive the crisis? No, he didn't. Not a chance. As a matter of fact, 47.12 noted, Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his household with food. And the understanding is that this came free, without a levy, without having to sell anything of their own. And so Egypt... Egypt became servants to Pharaoh and lost ownership of their property. But of Israel, we read, they gained possessions in the land of Egypt and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is verse 27. Now, this line is not merely audible relief from the pervasive language of loss and decline and languishing that breathes through this text. It's an intentional contrast with the Egyptians' gradual descent into servanthood. One people diminishes while another rises and increases in opposite trajectories. And this my friends, is due not to Israel's superior lifestyle, but because God is faithful and is beginning to fulfill his promise to make Jake's or Jacob's clan a nation. And although I would have to grant this, or maybe even alert you to it, Although this statement of growth that they gained and they went up in the world, this is a summary statement covering far more than the seven years of famine or whatever was left of it at this point. It's not one that should come as a total surprise to you. God has always used adverse circumstances to make us grow bringing life from death as the heart of Christ's gospel teaches us. Honor and exaltation is surely coming on the heels of humiliation and humility for his people. And the clincher or the key moment of contrast between these two, between Israel and Egypt, is in the final episode, as we saw last week in the text that we studied. Jacob's death is imminent. 
He actually managed to live through another 17 years after coming to Egypt. But his death is now imminent, and he feels it in his body. And so he calls Joseph to convey his last wish. He says, do not bury me in Egypt. Do you hear me? Carry me out of Egypt and bury me with my fathers in the land of Canaan. And Jacob then makes Joseph swear an oath. That's his own son. He makes him swear an oath that he would bury him in Canaan along with his ancestors. And these are the last words of our text. Listen to this and ponder it. Israel bowed himself upon the head of his staff. And you have to uh, imagine that um, Jacob is probably not able to stand up straight anymore, as some of us, myself included. But he can raise himself on his staff and at least make an attempt at bowing. And this is what he does on his staff, with his staff as support. Now, it looks like Jacob is saying, thank you to his son. It looks like Jacob bows before Joseph, but this isn't the case. He's bowing before the God of his fathers. Do you remember? It was in 46 verse 4, chapter 46 verse 4, that God had given Jacob the promise of bringing him up again from Egypt to bury him in the land of promise. Joseph is the agent, but God is the one who gave the promise. Jacob knows that his son's oath is as good as an oath from God and that God will fulfill his promise through his son, Joseph. All right, but now it's time for us to ask the critical question, so what? Is it really such a big deal? Does it matter where his bones will rot? In Egypt or in Canaan? Yes, don't be afraid to ask the tough questions. For this detail, this detail wants to be weighed carefully. So let me direct your attention to the final words of the text again. Israel bowing on his staff. Bowing before God. Do you know what it is saying or what it implies? It's saying Israel dies a free man, a, a servant of God, not of Pharaoh. And here's the crux of the passage. Jacob himself is contrasted with the Egyptians who are forced to bow before Pharaoh. But Jacob bows before his God. He's a free man of the Lord. And ultimately, subject to no ruler on earth, not even mighty Pharaoh. And then there are Jacob's remains. Jacob's remains being carried all the way to Canaan. And that was very elaborate for those days. You know that uh, it would have taken at least a month to do this. Jacob's remains being carried to Canaan is a sign pointing exactly in the same direction, adding to the fullness of the message of the text. He will not rest 
in Egyptian soil, where every speck of dust is essentially Pharaoh's property. And dust will return to dust. We know this. But his body belongs to God. And the symbolical exodus of his bones means that God has a claim on him to make him free, as his people will be one day, according to his promise. This man, Jacob, he will rest in the land that his God has promised to give him. He will rest as a citizen of God's kingdom as it was back then. Premature, early, all this is true, but there it is. And once again, you may wish to engage your cynicism and ask, what's the difference? He's still a servant. Yes, he's a servant, but in God's house, servants are free men, free people. And everything in God's house is free, as surely as even our sins have been freely forgiven because Jesus paid for our redemption with his own blood. And God does not take, God does not receive taxes or levies. He covers all our costs, all costs required. He opens his checkbook and pays. He opens his treasury and pays. And he still pays. He covers all costs required for our redemption. And this is the true and final exodus of God's people from this world, which is spiritually Egypt. That's how Revelation chapter 11 calls it. And it will also be accomplished in full only after death. On the day when the dead will be brought up from their graves. God has promised us a land and freedom. And while we still wait for our inheritance or the land, we do have freedom. That is the freedom as God's people, as God's children, to gain access with him and acceptance with God for nothing that we are or have done in and of ourselves. Freedom is what we have. Jesus once illustrated this truth in marvelous fashion as only he can. When tax agents called for the temple tax, they said to his disciples, doesn't your teacher pay taxes? Huh? And when Jesus heard it, he said to his disciples, now what do you think? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their children? Or from others? And the disciple says, we know the answer to this. From others, of course. And Jesus said to them, well then, the children are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel of silver. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, this is a parable, an acted parable. Jesus covers the cost for entering the temple 
the cost necessary to keep the temple business required. That was what temple tax was raised for. And he does it by a miracle. Something comes up from the deep, unexpected, something that has the payment in its mouth as a payment for both Jesus and his disciples. So the required tariff, this shekel, is being provided. And this is a parable. Our access to the heavenly court is paid for by Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise from the grave or from the deep. He covers the cost, our nakedness, and he makes us children who now enter into God's presence, though in ourselves we have nothing to secure our passage. Children are free. Children of God obtain their inheritance by grace plus Nothing, only based on God's promise. And so Jacob, in contrast to the Egyptians, bows before God to praise him for his promise that he knows will be fulfilled gratis. As you know from the 60s, it used to be said, freedom is just another word for having nothing left to lose. Freedom is just another word for having nothing left to lose. But it's not because you've been reduced to nothing, reduced to poverty and have nothing left to hope for. Freedom is having nothing left to lose because you believe that all things are yours. Let no one boast in man, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now, these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they sound odd and odd. They are meant to be. Paul engages in some interesting theological gymnastics to demonstrate the single idea, the nucleus of this text, that God has everything for you, everything in store. All things are yours. For if you start to think about this too hard, you may wonder, death and life, I didn't know that they are mine. But he says, there is nothing that will not be or is not already yours in Christ. Everything is included. That's because of the bottomless treasury of God's house, his riches, the riches of his grace. And this freedom for which Christ has set us free, that really do we do have nothing left to lose because everything is ours already. This freedom is the one in which we must firm, stand firm every day. And how do we do that? By not being enslaved to sin. Not being enslaved to a worldly mindset. Not being enslaved to the elemental principles that run this age, run this world, live and walk as a perfectly free man of the Lord, subject to no one, as Luther once wrote in his tractate on the freedom of Christians. Yes, he said, a Christian is a perfectly free man of the Lord, subject to no one. And then he added this paradox. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. (laughs) Our most sublime Exercise of freedom is this, choosing to serve others. 
freely choosing to serve others with no need to be recognized in this world or in this life as Christ did of his own accord to save us. And this is the power of Christ that sets us free from everything that wants to possess us. Addiction, fear of missing out in life, inferiority complex, thoughts of vengeance and hatred. Like the two demoniacs of Matthew chapter 8 who were freed from their being possessed. Jesus delivers us from every chain. We can trust him in any time of need. We're called to be free people in his presence through his word. Rami. Rami had joined the Iranian Hezbollah at age 12. He hated Christians above all people. And he read his Quran daily. But one night, as he prayed to Allah, he felt that he was threatened by an evil spirit. He cried to Allah, but the demon ruled his heart all the more through dreadfully oppressive thoughts. He cried to Allah even more. Rami recited surah after surah of his Quran. But demonic fear lay on his heart and soul and drove him mad. And then he heard a voice saying, pray in the name of Jesus. And he didn't care to hear it, didn't care to listen to it. But his mouth opened as if of itself. Jesus, show yourself to me. If you are real, show yourself to me. And suddenly the evil spirit lost its grip and departed. It was the turning point of Rami's life. Rami is now an evangelist in Iran, preaching freedom, freedom in the name of Jesus from any kind of oppression and a guarantee that what God has begun, he will finish in the day of Jesus Christ when all his people will come home, will be brought up from Egypt to the land of freedom and peace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text in which we learn that um, our hope is not in things that perish. There is necessity, and necessity has its claim on all of us. Often we must make decisions that we wouldn't choose, and we also are forced to become creative. But the greatest creativity and the greatest invention that I can think of is this very thing that you have given us, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to put our trust in Jesus alone. And whether there is famine, whether there is height or depth, anything in all creation will then not be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that we have this assurance that Jesus has already risen and is seated on your right hand. And because he is there, 
Many, many more will follow. Jacob's bones were brought up from Egypt as a token of many who would one day make the trip. And so we wait and we rejoice in your promise, in your Son, whose name is blessed forevermore. Amen.